Hello. Bonjour. Hello. Welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. We're delighted you've joined us to learn more about fertility and the latest research from highly respected and experienced experts within the industry. My name is Dave Morrill. I'm the Director of Clinical Support for Cooper Surgical Fertility Solutions. In this episode, I'm talking to Sarah Martins de Silva and Denny Sakas. We have chosen uh, today to discuss andrology, and you may ask why andrology would be the first in the series. I think it's fair to say that sperm have been historically overlooked, but given that it contributes 50% of the embryonic genome, and we're increasingly aware of the impact of sperm DNA integrity beyond fertilization, it seems sensible for us to examine this uh, area of reproductive medicine in more detail. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Sarah Martins de Silva and Dr. Denny Sackas, and I'll let my guests uh, give a brief introduction to themselves and their interest in andrology. So, hi, my name is Sarah Martins de Silva. I run a translational research program focused around male infertility, sperm biology, and drug discovery. I'm also a consultant gynecologist. I work in the IVF unit in Dundee. And I'm the person responsible and clinical lead for infertility services. But I have a bridge between my clinical work and my research work in that I also run clinics focused around male infertility and failed fertilization following IVF ICSI. Thank you, Sarah. And Denny? Thank you, David. Um, so my name is Denny Sarkis. Um, I'm CSO at Boston IVF and also Associate Professor at Yale University. I've had an interest in sperm for um, for quite a long time. Uh, first started by um, performing what was then called SUSY, um, subzonal insemination, for those that you remember pre-ICSI. Um, and then uh, I, I ran a research group in Geneva, Geneva in Switzerland, where we actually, um, with the collaborators in Italy, we developed a very strong interest in sperm chromatin structure and that actually led us to looking at sperm DNA structure. So we've had a long-term interest in looking at how uh, mammalian sperm, and in particular human sperm, create their, their nuclear uh, organisation. So we've, we've had a long interest in looking at how the chromatin and nucleus in sperm uh, are formed, and obviously that's also led to understanding how that uh, functions in, in male infertility patients also. Fabulous. So we uh, definitely have the right uh, expertise. And I'd like to um, kick off by um, discussing some elements of uh, lifestyle and so on that contribute. And um, Sarah, if I come to you first, uh, you uh, in our webinar, you highlighted the impact of changes in lifestyle and diet. What, what do you think would be the most effective change you encourage men to make in, in order to help them improve chances of conception? Oh, great question. So I think the first thing is, I think as clinicians, we shouldn't be afraid of starting with what might seem like quite basic lifestyle or life exposure messages. So I think if you had to do one thing, if you're a smoker, I think giving up smoking is a no brainer. It's a huge benefit to your personal health as well as potentially your reproductive health. Um, I think, you know, empowering men to make the right choices, to think about the diet that they uh, 
consume, to think about the exercise that they undertake, to think about getting a good night's sleep, to think about stresses and things in their lives that they can take ownership of are all really empowering. And I think that's part of the message that I want to get across is, you know, we're quite limited in what we can offer clinically. So looking at these basic uh, elements is, is therefore fundamentally important. That's great. And, and, and Denny, what, given your interest in the DNA integrity and, and the possible role of um, oxidative stress, do, do you have a particular approach to the use of, of antioxidants, for example? Apart from testing oxidative stress adducts in sperm, um, we, we haven't looked uh, that deeply into, into adding oxidative um, stress uh, changes, if you want. Uh, we originally had published some papers on looking at vitamin E um, as a as a treatment, but that that data, you know, all the vitamin data, and I'd be interested to hear what Sarah thinks of it. it it's been a, you know, a, there's a lot of plus and minuses. I, I don't think there's anything conclusive in that data. Um, so it, it's hard to say what type of treatments, especially when you look at the area of vitamins. Um, you know, how they may impact on oxidative adducts and things like that. I, I definitely agree with Sarah that just simple changes in lifestyle, health, obesity and smoking, you know, I think the data is very clear there. Um, but other other changes, I think, you know, in terms of vitamin and, and that, it, it's harder to see any changes, I think, in DNA structure or even the oxidative stress adducts uh, assessment. Would you Would you agree? Sarah, that the the use of dietary supplements and antioxidants perhaps is still <laughs> controversial to say the least. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think I've been shy in coming forward to say exactly that. I think my worry with these sort of vitamin and diet supplements, particularly those that are marketed specifically for the male fertility, um, uh, you know, kind of market, are overpriced and probably overstated. And I think, you know, taking things simpler into just sort of looking at what you eat and consume is probably a better way of sourcing biologically relevant and appropriate, you know, diet uh, antioxidants rather than worry about taking lots of expensive uh, supplements. I agree with Denny. I think the data is all over the place. Well, not all over the place, but I don't think the data is compelling to suggest that we should be, you know, suggesting all patients take antioxidants. And I'm not clear that really taking antioxidants is going to fix things. And I think that's the, you know, worry that I have is that a lot of people think if I put some money behind this, if I invest in, in this approach, that it's going to make the difference. And I don't think the clinical data or the scientific data would support that. And I, th I recall from the webinar, Sarah, that you showed some data that actually taking some supplements to excess could be detrimental. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, there is this kind of concept of, of oxidative stress and kind of then trying to correct that, but actually kind of overdoing it and kind of, uh, you know, a counterintuitive damage. Um, I, again, it's, I think coming back to the absolute basics of what I and others are trying to do is, you know, fundamentally understanding, you know, the environment that a sperm is created and grows and matures within and, you know, what difference that we can make to that. And by understanding the fundamentals, then understanding what we can do to correct where there is a problem, rather than this sort of blunderbuss approach of, 
you know, I couldn't imagine sitting in front of somebody that's had a heart attack and saying, well, oxidative stress is probably a problem here for your cardiovascular disease. So why don't you take a vitamin? And I think that's kind of the approach that we've gone down in the, in, in the absence of having anything else for male infertility. Thank you. And we, we actually received a question um, that, that actually suggested that studies had shown dramatically increased ATP production in sperm when make when men take certain Chinese medicinal yang boosters. Um, is there is there anything to support the idea of traditional medicine or acupuncture or any of the alternative uh, approaches? I don't know whether Denny uh, has a view. In the absence of Denny, <laughs> on I'm going to go for that question. But I think it's fair <laughs> to say I am not an expert in supplements, and I probably just uh, kind of say I don't. I don't really know. I think the acupuncture one is an interesting one, and this perhaps leads on to something else that I, uh, you know, highlighted in the in the webinar, which was actually there is a bit of a link with stress and with sleep. Um, or enough sleep and male infertility. And I think there are a group of, of, of men that may benefit from acupuncture in the sense that somebody once described to me going to a series of acupuncture um, sessions, and it was, you know, an hour of their diary that was blocked out. They went, they relaxed in a clinic with, okay, some, some you know, appropriately placed acupuncture needles and so on. But it was just a, a sense of, when they were describing to me a sense of space and peace. And I think, you know, perhaps not so much in, in lockdown life, but, you know, in our normal, totally mad and bonkers and ever so stress-fueled lives, that actually giving yourself the space to just be quiet and calm and reflect, perhaps that is, a, you know, an important thing for not everybody, but for some. And you spoke um, uh, in the in the webinar about the impact of sleep, and you, you've mentioned it uh, again a couple of times. Is that um, is that the the typical target of seven to eight hours, or is that very variable between individuals? I think it is variable. I think the data would suggest that there's a sort of a U-shaped curve. So too little sleep is bad and too much sleep is also bad. Um, and, and there's probably a sweet spot. And whether that's seven to eight hours or a little bit more, I don't know. Uh, but I, I think certainly the data would suggest that that is about what we should be trying to achieve. I'm also a big believer, and I'm not sure there's very much scientific data behind it, about going to bed at a reasonable time. So not actually so much you know, the exact number of minutes or hours you sleep, but actually going to bed before midnight, uh, you know, sort of 10, 10, 30, or, you know, some sort of reasonable time of the evening so that you have an appropriate duration of sleep rather than, you know, I always feel that, you know, particularly for us medics where we're working days or nights, you know, that sort of sleep disruption, you might sleep, but you'll sleep quite fitfully during the day having been up all night operating, for example. Uh, absolutely. Let me, um, let me change tack a little bit and ask about um, declining fertility rates. Um, there's there's been a recent article in uh, a newspaper in the UK um, citing the epidemiologist Shana T Swan from the ICANN School of Medicine in New York, where she's um, suggested that falling sperm counts threaten human survival. Um, and I wondered, let's let's perhaps get Denny's view initially. Is that too dramatic? Are the declining sperm counts so concerning? Uh, and what what impact will that have on the provision of ART? 
I'm a bit skeptical some of, sometimes of of this data. If if you look at some of the publications, it is it, one thing that's consistent for me when you look at the falling sperm counts. It is fairly sort of related to what area those studies are done in. Um, if you generally look at sort of high pollution areas, I think you probably see more of a declining sperm count. I think in in areas that have a less touched by pollution, let's say, and environmental factors, you probably see less. Um, and as you may, you know, know, David, sort of looking, you know, having an andrologist background, you know, the, the way we counted sperm over the last 30, 40, maybe even 50 years, if you want to say, um, has also changed, I think. And a lot of these studies don't come from fertile patients, a lot of, a lot of related to infertility clinics. So it, it, it also may be a reflection of the type of patients that are coming in too. So, I'm, I'm, you know, I think there may be a declining sperm count, and I think a lot of that's related to lifestyle and maybe pollution, environmental factors. But I think there is something to be said that there, there's a technical issue in terms of this um, declining sperm count. And I don't think it's as dramatic as, you know, the... The, the loss of men, you know, male, the loss of the sperm or the, you know, the Y chromosome, if you want. And, and Sarah, is is that your take? But do you think we should be looking for ways to reverse declining sperm counts? Or is it just that we're producing maybe smaller numbers of fertile sperm? So I'm going to agree and agree to disagree. <laughs> Firstly, I think that Denny is right. The way that we have counted sperm historically, the way that we have done semen analysis and geographical variation are considerable influences on the data. On the other hand, I genuinely think that sperm counts are declining. I think the data is fairly uh, impressive. I think it's pretty robust. I think it does include various geographical um, distributions. And my worry is that actually countries that aren't included, such as sub-Saharan Africa and Central Eastern Europe and so on, perhaps have more of a story and, and more of an influence that we haven't seen as yet. I think what's utterly terrifying is we genuinely don't know what's causing it. I think we can all make sort of summations about whether there's pollution or lifestyle issues, obesity, smoking, Western diet, all of these things. But I think it's true to say that we genuinely don't know. And whilst I don't think that we're at you know, imminent risk of the population kind of becoming extinct, I do think that within this, we should all be kind of taking a big bolt set up and just think, well, what is this data really about and what should we be doing about it? Why isn't there a bigger global initiative to move forward in terms of understanding what it is that is influencing and impacting on male infertility and what we can do to change that if, if we can? So is, is that perhaps um, people becoming... Um, I'll use the word complacent. Maybe that maybe that's the wrong word, but complacent because we had such effective ways of treating male infertility or, or bypassing male infertility rather than treating it. I guess absolutely. You know, we have ICSI as a you know really effective intervention for male factor infertility, and thank goodness we have something. But on the other hand, I think that has distracted from that. Uh, understanding knowledge and, um, and 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 you know there's perhaps less pressure, less 
urgency to push forward and understand the sperm and, and the male biology better. And I think, you know, hats off to Cooper Surgical for, you know, putting this first and, and putting this conversation on the agenda, because I think the more like-minded individuals we can get and the more impetus that we have to ask these difficult questions then sets the scene for, you know, trying to change and, and turn the tables. Thank you, Sarah and Denny, and thank you to everyone who's tuned in to our first episode of Fertility Insights. Please like, comment and share and make sure to tune in to our next episode.